Hello and welcome to Serverless Transformation, a podcast dedicated to authentic serverless. In this week's episode, we have the audio recording of the Serverless Transformation panel discussion, where guests from Microsoft, Cloudsoft, and Serverless Inc. discuss the security implications of serverless. If you'd like to see the video for this podcast, feel free to go to our YouTube page, but otherwise, enjoy the show. So hi, I hope everyone can hear us and uh, welcome to the Serverless Transformation panel discussion. This week focusing on Secureless and is serverless Secureless. We have a great panel this week. I'm gonna go through and introduce those now. Um, a little intro myself, my name's Ben. Um, I'm the VP of Engineering at Theater UK. I help our teams in the engineering side, especially around serverless. And I run several initiatives around serverless, like these panel discussions, a blog and a podcast. So feel free to follow me there. And if you have any questions during the panel, feel free to submit them through the Zoom tool. Um, okay, let's move on to intros. Um, so today we have uh, Gareth from Serverless. Gareth, would you like to introduce yourself? Uh, sorry, Gareth, I think you're on mute. Let me do that. Let me do the unmute. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Gareth McComsky. I'm a solutions architect at Serverless Inc. I'm based out of Cape Town, if anybody's wondering about the funny accent. And uh, yeah, I, I work on the growth team uh, as a solutions architect, uh, helping um, customers and users of the framework uh, build and design their serverless applications um, in the sort of the most efficient way possible, hopefully. Um, and Serverless Inc. is the, are the creators and maintainers of the serverless framework, uh, probably the most popular serverless framework uh, at the moment. Um, and we also offer various services in the, in the serverless application realm, including Serverless Framework Pro to help manage your development lifecycle. Um, and that's me. Thanks, Gareth. Uh, next, we have Maxime from Microsoft. Hey, uh, name is Maxime. I'm a cloud developer advocate at Microsoft. I've been at Microsoft for well, a little bit more over two years now. Uh, you might have heard of us. We uh, we made Windows, we made Azure, and we have a whole bunch of different other products that I'm not going to get into into it now. Uh, but among those that are interested for this panel are among other things are Azure Functions and API Managements and all the other different tools that are centered around uh, serverless. Uh, I have a vested interest in serverless because I find it super easy to start and super easy to teach uh, people how you can leverage a cloud and get started really quickly with software development without getting yourself stuck in the, your, your feet stuck in the carpet, right? So yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter and we can have great discussions. My emails are always open. Amazing, thanks, Maxine. And finally, we have Alid from CloudSoft. Hi, everyone. My name's um, Alid, I'm VP Engineer at CloudSoft. I uh, spent the last 20 years working on distributed systems, mostly in the enterprise sector, interested in DevOps, automation, and cloud. Uh, my, much of my focus is on AWS, uh, so CloudSoft's an AWS advanced consulting partner. Uh, we do work with other clouds and on-prem as well, uh, particularly for very large customers. Uh, but I spend most of my time working with customers to help them either migrate to the cloud or write new applications or just use the cloud better. Uh, those applications could be running on VMs and containers or uh, based on Lambda functions. Uh, so quite a, a wide range of things. Obviously, serverless is one of the most exciting ones there, but there's a hell of a lot of legacy stuff out there that just uh, VMs is the right choice for. <laughs> Amazing. Thanks, Alad. Um, cool. So let's jump on to the first question. Uh, so from a, from a security perspective, 
what concerns does serverless eliminate from a traditional serverful architecture? I think Gareth, you were going to take the lead on starting to answer that. Yeah, no problem. So this is uh, probably one of those really massive advantages that I think a lot of folks see when they're considering uh, serverless as a way to build apps. Um, and the reason for this is it basically takes us that one extra step up on the sort of architectural ladder. Uh, the same thing that cloud did to your own uh, data center in your own office space. Uh, whereas in the good old days, if you had your own server, you'd have to put it in a room somewhere, uh, provision all that, uh, you know, the, the infrastructure around uh, air conditioning and so on. But you also had to secure your own machines. And that was a real problem until you could switch to somebody like AWS, for example, who then takes all that away from you. And you don't need to worry about actual, you know, securing access to machines anymore. You just need to make sure that access to the, the underlying software is, is what you maintain uh, in the cloud. Uh, but that's still, if you're, if you're in, a, in a team where you're a uh, development focused and you want to build applications, if you're building in the traditional uh, VM style with an underlying operating system and so on, you're still, uh, you still have to be concerned about keeping up to speed with what that means, what that entails security-wise. Uh, you've got to keep, you've got to stay on those mailing lists to see when the, the latest vulnerability is being found and when to patch the operating system or the runtime or uh, your web server configuration. There's, there's, there's a lot of factors involved in that. Um, and I've, I've been there over the years as well where you suddenly find out about this uh, hot lead uh, vulnerability comes out and suddenly everything has to get patched, all 17 servers, and you don't have a DevOps technician on the team or somebody that can handle that in their sleep. Um, so this, this helps, like I was saying, serverless helps abstract that kind of thing away now because obviously with serverless and Lambda, you no longer need to worry about that operating system layer. You're completely, you're 100% you're in the application layer. And that really uh, makes that side of managing uh, security a lot simpler. There's no patches to update um, and so on. Uh, and this has, a, has some benefits, but it also has some downsides, which we'll probably get into as well. But the advantage of essentially shifting that responsibility, um, AWS works on a shared responsibility model. Um, if anybody's used AWS, they've probably heard that phrase. And really it means is that AWS says, we, we're handling this stuff for you, but you have to handle this security of the stuff uh, above this. Um, and uh, serverless and Lambda takes that up that level and says, we handle all the hardware, we handle all the software, you just need to worry about your app. Um, and that means that as, a, as somebody who's, who builds applications, I can focus on staying up to date with you know, any, any potential issues in my application instead of worrying about other people's software uh, necessarily. Um, the other advantage that it gives us is in the sort of trickier to develop uh, services, I guess you could call them as well. So if you're looking at uh, building a user authentication system or user management system, that technically is actually, uh, you have to be relatively knowledgeable about how to build something like that to make it secure. It's not something you can just throw together in an afternoon and call it quits. Uh, you have to understand some level of, what encryp of, of encryption of, of user information and so on, uh, for example. Uh, but then services like Auth0 and Cognito are out there that kind of handle that for you as well. You just need to understand how to speak to an endpoint, an API. And that means that you've got secure user management for your application and you didn't have to be uh, an expert in encryption to understand how this works and why it makes things more secure for you. Amazing. Thanks, Gareth. Um, and I, I agree. I, uh, I think I sleep better at night with my serverless projects uh, than thinking about my other projects. Mm. And uh, one small anecdote on this. So I recently had an ISO audit with one of my clients of their projects. 
and it actually involved somebody coming to their office and going through some stuff with us. And they were quite insistent on our knowing our process for managing SSH keys. And we had maybe a half an hour conversation where I tried to explain that we don't have any SSH keys, um, which is a nice moment for me to realize we've eliminated a lot of complexity around how we manage that. And yes, we introduced new things around how we're managing our AWS access keys. That's a different problem and something I find much more easy to solve. Um, Alid, uh, do you have any perspectives from your projects and your clients? Because you've moved, I guess, from to the cloud and then VMs and now yeah. serverless. Yeah, so for um, getting rid of those VMs, it's not just about that you don't need to patch them anymore. It's also enforces best practices of other things like um, you're going to use aggregated logging and that kind of thing. So a lot of stuff is possible when you're using VMs. Like you could never log into VM and treat them as uh, ephemeral instances and this kind of thing. But most of the people we deal with don't do that. They still have those SSH keys sitting around. They still log into the boxes and who knows what commands they run. Like it's unaudited changes happening. Uh, so to just get rid of that risk, um, which could be done by uh, other best practices and making use of like AWS have a um, systems manager way of running commands on a VM that's going to be logged, but it's a lot of new things for somebody to learn still. Um, yeah, so makes yeah sense. I think that's the biggest one. And uh, Maxime, I guess I came from it to it with uh, quite an AWS perspective. From the Microsoft perspective, what sort of tooling around um, serverless have you found most advantageous around sort of abstracting away security concerns? Um, for me, one of the one of the tools that allows me to really secure a serverless application for me has been tools like um, API management, because one of the issues that we always find ourselves in is that those serverless applications are always public; they're always um, forward facing, or um, and those kind of um, those kind of toolings allows you basically to just isolate either your users or your tenants or uh, really allows you to isolate those those applications only to the people that are allowed to do them. Of course, uh, you can just create a VNet and just have it accessible internally, but like how much fun is that? Um, because most of the time those applications still need to do something else. And so one of the things that all the serverless elements, like the whole slew of problems that Garrett talked about, like uh, having to manage your OS and your, your your patches and stuff like that. Uh, platforms like Pass that provide exactly the same kind of features. So we're, we're kind of seeing like all those kind of issues kind of coalescing together all the same at the same place because we're just we're, we're getting into this finer grain deployment model where uh, the security concerns are getting stricter and stricter. And one of the we're going to get probably on my on my lead on the uh, the other question at some point, but um, for me, it's uh, it's really on the on the side of networking and allowing you to uh, restrict those applications to only the people that are that are being allowed to, and things like any kind of tools that it's provided in API management is one of those uh, really powerful tools for um, for users. And the granularity, so we are deploying yeah. smaller things with. I am I'm with uh, API management. That's really where we can get quite powerful restriction if yep. you configure it in the right way. Mm -hmm. um, I guess we can move on to our next question, which is- Well, some... I'll just oh, add before yeah, we move on as well. So if we take the, the broader definition of serverless, so not just thinking about functions, but all mm -hmm. the other services that we want yeah. to make use of, hand over to the cloud provider, this idea of like 
not having to manage your database server, not having to manage your own Active Directory, not running your own load balancer. Uh, when we go and have to work with people who are doing on-prem stuff or trying to move to the cloud, like that's the the biggest saving is is those areas where you can actually hand that over to somebody whose day job is to manage hundreds of thousands of databases really well. And I was oh sorry sorry the the other the other uh, benefit of that is, is that a lot of the uh, cloud vendors, including Microsoft, AWS, and I think even Google, uh, have situations with these sort of the, these serverless services, as I like to call them, where you don't it's all managed. You don't have to. You don't have to worry about the underlying network layer necessarily. They're only accessible via API layers that are internally secured by the cloud vendor. That locks away the issues that I've seen in the past where somebody sets up a, even a, even a, a managed uh, relational database system, but it's publicly facing. It's exposed to the open, open web just because that was the most convenient way to connect to it. Um, and this is just because this is a team of developers who are great at building apps, but they don't necessarily have all that knowledge needed to manage these systems securely. Um, and that's one of those things that managed services gives you is that the team behind that are the guys who know how to secure these things and build and, and put them together in a way that makes it safer for developers to use, which takes you to the other step where a lot of DevOps teams over the years have grown to build uh, restrictions into what they provide, uh, you know, the, the engineers and so on who build the applications because they want to make sure that these engineers can't shoot themselves in the foot when it comes to security. But again, that's what serverless gives you as well, is that the DevOps teams can then kind of take a step back and say, well, here you go, he has access. Go use what you want to use as far as these serverless services are concerned. We don't mind because we know that they're managed. They, they work well and, they, and you can't shoot yourself in the foot and give someone unadulterated access via the public web to your database, for example. So, Yeah, the abstraction really helps to lower that total cost of ownership and really empowers developers to be autonomous with the guardrails of, we know we don't have random ports open, we know there's an API and we have auditing. So I think there's a lot of yep. advantages. If we move on to the next question, we sort of shift this around. Uh, so from a security perspective, what concerns does service introduce? Uh, Maxime, I think you were gonna lead the yep. answer to this question. So serverless can be seen really as like just silver bullet where all the problems are gonna be solved like there's no more servers and yeah, I'm going to skip those server jokes because everyone heard them a thousand times. Um, but one of the biggest issue I think, and that's the kind of a new problems that we have and it's a security problem, but more like a wallet problem because although we have, we, we kind of have the fix in some ways for this, the DOS there's this new kind of problem that some call the distributed denial of wallet. As in, if I hit your API hard enough, I can have you spend thousands of dollars on a serverless API. And so that's kind of a new problem that we did not have in the past. If you had a fixed VM or you had a pass that was set with strict deployment in terms of scaling, you could easily just have a cap on the amount of spend that you would have. But when we're talking about infinite scale, we're also talking about infinite spend, which is kind of worrying at some point. And so th those are one of the issues where you really need to start thinking about having some kind of front end that will cover those kind of things that would provide those rate limitation that would provide um, limited access or quotas your your APIs or even even better use things like CDN for caching 
and I'm not recommending just Microsoft technology here. I'm just talking about in general what serverless is, that you will need an API management. You will need uh, cache on top of your application. Those are new concerns that uh, you might not have had to tackle with initially, but definitely with serverless, you, you want to start looking at those a little bit earlier because somebody starting to hit your application way early, uh, way harder, can have some very uh, interesting results on your spend that might go above what you're you're actually expecting. Um, so they were also, uh, I think Garrett was also talking about removing the guardrails a little bit in terms of deployment. So this is amazing because it allows us to deploy our application in brand new ways and give basically back power to developers to just experiment. But there's also like the other side of the, of the coin, right? I mean, you're, you're gonna have this whole bunch of new applications that are gonna be on the cloud. And, and if you're not respecting the, uh, the principles of least privilege in some ways, you may end up with applications that have more privilege than, than required, uh, that have not been checked, that have not been gone, gone through all those processes. Because if you're a single developer in a company, that is easy to tackle and remove those applications. But if you're a hundred developers in, an app, in a company and you have this hundreds different serverless applications, each with different securities and different stuff, um, so those are, are harder problems because now we have a hundred different applications instead of like just a few. Instead of tackling issues on top of just a few of them in which we can really control with a CI/CD task, now we have a whole bunch of different ones that we will need to make sure that we we integrate into our flow and our security checks. So just like um, dependencies. So if you're doing any kind of node development, you know that dependencies and sub-dependencies are revving at an incredible space. And we need to make sure that those dependencies stay secure. And all the new application that can be so easily deployed also need to be um, scanned and checked for make sure that we're not having all those issues uh, in terms of uh, packages that may, may introduce uh, injection problems. And injection problem is like the top one, of, I think, on the uh, OWASP list. So it's always like one of those weird uh, problems that we think we solved and it's never solved. <laughs> I think that's a great summary, Maxim. Thanks. And I think when you mentioned smaller companies not necessarily having the resource uh, to know what they have running, I think. One of the advantages in the past of like an EC2 instance was when you're a smaller company and there's a random bill for an instance you don't remember making in an AWS region and it's called test. So they used to be sort of from a financial perspective a burden to fix that issue. Whereas now you can leave a Lambda function somebody made and forgot about and yep. if you don't have the processes to audit this sort of stuff, you can easily leave stuff running. I guess Gareth, from the, uh, the serverless uh, framework point of view, you guys have worked on the serverless enterprise product recently to yeah. add some guardrails for some of the problems that you see. Could you talk briefly about what those guardrails are and sort of the problems they address? Yeah, thanks for the question. I was actually going to bring that up um, because we found one of the problems that happens is, and I mentioned the idea that, you know, DevOps teams, for example, can kind of take hands off and say to developers, go ahead, do what you want to do in this environment because we kind of realize that there's guardrails in place to protect you. We don't need to hold your hands anymore with the stuff. Uh, but in some cases, uh, a lot of those teams do want to do some 
auditing some sort of, uh, you know, watching over of what these teams are doing, but not in a way that's intrusive and, and slowing them down. Because one of the great advantages of serverless development is the speed at which you can get stuff out there, solving business problems. Um, so part of the part of, part of the uh, product that we built with the serverless framework Pro uh, or Enterprise Edition is a feature called Profiles, where you can essentially add rules on top of deployments. Um, and this is great when you're deploying your serverless applications with the serverless framework because you could put rules in place, for example, like uh, making sure that your IAM role statements in AWS don't have any wildcards in them. Uh, because giving a function access to DynamoDB like Dynamo colon star is about as bad as letting it, uh, having a database open to the public. Um, not a great idea, and you kind of want to lock that down as much as possible. Uh, so you can put a rule in place that when you make a deployment, it'll block deployment and say, this IAM role statement has a wildcard in it. We'd like you to fix that before deployment can continue, essentially. Um, and there's a whole bunch of these uh, types of rules that we've, you know, it's predefined ahead of time that, that lets you just pick them. Um, you know, and the, and the advantage of this, and, and it's, it's not technically us as the only people in the industry doing this, uh, but it's very different to the, um, uh, the, the uh, DevOps monitoring industry as a whole. Uh, serverless is quite different. Um, the advantage here is that being the developers of the serverless framework, we kind of have a, a look into what the best practices are at the moment. So we kind of understand what people need and are looking for in that development lifecycle, which helps. Um, so if there's also something there that's, that's not available, we even have a, a feature to let you write your own uh, policy from scratch. So you don't have to use a pre-built one. But um, IAM is one of those, uh, and it, this is across vendors as well. This isn't just an AWS thing. IAM is one of those things that, as an application developer or engineer, you need to understand uh, quite critically as to how this works, how it can secure applications. Um, and I think uh, Maxime mentioned the idea of having those granular permissions in functions gets really tricky to manage, especially when you can start just pumping out hundreds of thousands of functions because it's so easy. Uh, all of a yeah. sudden, you've got these all of these applications all with different IAM permissions, and suddenly you don't necessarily know what they look like. So it's great to have something on top of that that can just give you a bit of a an, an, an extra guardrail. As it were. And I like that because it's empowering developers. It's not saying ops are the only people who can make iron policies, which I've seen in some companies and I've seen the frustration that causes. It's saying developers, you can try, but we have some rules and, and those are on CI. So you get feedback in a few seconds rather than a long email chain of someone trying to get a policy set up. And, and I if I can, yeah. I was just going to add to that. You mentioned CI. That's also why the Serverless Framework Pro, we've, we've got a, a CI-CD system in beta at the moment. Because even Maxine mentioned, now you have to take your serverless application with all these secrets, st stick it into someone else's CI system and hope for the best. Uh, we, we've, we've seen that pain as well. So we're trying to help solve that solution uh, with, a, with a sort of integrated system that you don't have to share all these secrets all over the place necessarily. And Alad, did you have anything to add uh, to this question? Yeah, um, I think that a lot of the apps that are written in a serverless way are very, very different from the traditional kind of apps that we see. Um, so the number of entry points into the app is very different. So how is that triggered? Is it by object uploads? Is it by uh, emails coming through? Is it processing some data stream? Uh, and this completely changes the way you need to think about security. Uh, so a lot of developers are used to the idea of uh, I've written a web app and uh, traffic is going to come through the load balancer. So you know, defense at the perimeter has major problems with that, but it's an important part of defense. Um, and now that perimeter has suddenly got loads of entry points into it. And to understand about 
uh, how you defend all those different areas is hard. And with like a, the uh, injection style of attacks, those are often defended against at that uh, web front end, either by using some buff rules or by um, you know, uh, sanitizing the, the input at that level. But to also then make sure you're doing that with all these other points that, that like emails are coming in or um, uh, this some really interesting attacks you can do with file uploads where you upload a file that has an unusual looking name uh, which uh, with some commands buried in the middle of it to make sure that you're guarding against all that sort of stuff is very new to most developers uh, and yeah i think that one of the reasons unfortunately why serverless is is quite secure is because a lot of the script kiddies have not exploited this yet like there are not a set of uh exploits out there that just can be readily downloaded and um, to attack that most of those are focusing on the OWASP top 10 and yeah there's hundreds of thousands of really unsecure classic applications out there that are going to get most of that traffic targeting um, but if you look at the the actual end vulnerabilities that are are in serverless apps um, so yeah they're on average a lot better than server-based apps but they've also got a lot of vulnerabilities yeah the application yeah. security topic hasn't gone away Sorry, Maxine. Uh, yeah, so you're totally right on this. Like all the applications that we built in the past are still the, sa the same things that we learned from, from our past mistakes are still still apply here. It's just the difference here is the serverless. It's just we're one, one, higher, one level higher of abstraction, which allows us to, to reach those incredible scale. But the same issues that we had in the past, like like I said, like you still need to sanitize your, um, your inputs. But I would even push it a little bit further is a lot of those serverless events are, are even like, are not even taking just HTTP requests anymore. You're taking files, you're taking uh, message from queues. And so I think there's, I, I don't know the, the right answer here, but I think that we need to be more careful about what we allow in our system and to really sanitize anything that needs end up as the input for another functions. So even if you're just storing it, that doesn't mean that it's the end of it. Because since taking in a file might be your input, but you might just be saying, I just want to store it. But that file now can become the input of another function that you're not, you're not aware of. Or the name that you're using might end up in a message that will end up in some in another, another system. Of course, it's not going to be exploited by script kiddies, but it may end up as a security security issue or security security vulnerability in your system, and we have to be aware of, of, of like those little flaws. And so, so yeah, there's there's new there's new potential for problems uh, that may not be exploited by the easy hacks, but might be um, used to take down the system or do those denial of wallet or just be able to leak your credentials. So we have to be very careful on user input. This is still very relevant. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think the point you raised about being aware of the wider context is something difficult in serverless because you have a team that have this autonomy to you know, um, create new Lambda functions or create new parts of serverless infrastructure. So not just functions of service, but the queuing system, the step functions, the triggers. One, one thing I read about recently is the importance of one thing I saw recently was the importance of making any authorization checks or sanitation checks as early as possible in the flow. Because if you have something coming through API gateway that then triggers, a, um, I'm going to talk in AWS terminology, 
triggers a lambda function, which is function as a service, which goes to a step function, which then puts something in S3, which then triggers kinesis, which then triggers a lambda function. Not only is that hard to trace, but if you only do your authentication check, is this user able to do this action at that last function as a service call, you've paid for all that other execution. So from a denial of wallet attack, you've, you've opened yourself up to a lot of cost and a lot of vulnerability. Putting all of this at the API gateway, at the API management layer, and doing as checks as early as possible, I think is extremely important. And that's mainly because the developers won't always know the context that their one function is operating in. The other uh, thing to add on top of that is that uh, it's not necessarily just about that entry point either because the downside that serverless gives you is because you can have this, this chain of events passing this user input down this chain through multiple functions because of the, all these event types that can continue to trigger. My Lambda function that was four levels deep triggered by a PubSub service, suddenly the, uh, some, another developer takes that over uh, puts that upfront in the scenario directly receiving API gateway request, but it never had valid, uh, any user input validation to begin with because it was so deep and, you know, and, and nobody worried about it back then. Well, now you've got the problem where you've got a function that used to run beautifully, now receiving dirty input uh, from the outside world. Uh, you know, so you put it as much as you can upfront, like you're saying, catching that authentication authorization. Is this person allowed into the system at all? Uh, but valid, validating user input should be something that happens throughout the entire chain all the way to the end. And that's, that's really one of those ways to help capture uh, that problem. And again, one of the reasons why uh, generally I find in, server, in the serverless world, the best way to help protect you on these things is to uh, use as much of the managed services that the cloud provider uh, gives you because they eliminate a lot of those problems to begin with. So if I was using dirty input in my uh, authentication system, Cognita, for example, would have a way to help filter that out. Whereas my own system that I built from scratch might not be quite as well built for all I know. So yeah. Yeah, the, the most secure code is the code you don't write, right? Exactly, so yeah. I think cloud native solutions are um, largely the way to go on a total cost of Solve problems, yeah. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. Um, I think we can move on to the next question unless there's anything else anyone wanted to add. Uh, I'll add one last thing. Sure. <laughs> so um, I think there's a big problem that security teams in InfoSec are still playing catch up in this. So developers are, it's great that like uh, they're able to run with this and build some really cool apps um, and guardrails are slowly trying to catch up with that. But the sort of audits that you get from a, a security team or InfoSec are either at the level of blocking you from doing what you want to do because they don't understand what you're doing or just not being particularly helpful because they're just going, well, can we scan it using our traditional quality system or whatever that scans VMs? And as a result, like there's not a good uh, enforcement of best practice across the board. And it's left to, to t all the teams to independently figure out security. Uh, and we really need to get those guardrails in place. And to speak to that quickly as well, we've seen a lot of examples of that at serverless as well, because we do deal with customers and we offer support and we see customers, uh, for example, asking us to complete security surveys uh, so they can assess the level of security of our, you know, as an organization. And a lot of the questions we have, like you mentioned as well, Ben, is SSH keys. We kind of have the, we end up putting an NA in that block because we just don't have them. Uh, and a lot of that stuff happens that way. You know, you're, what, what, what are your uh, security network uh, compliances? And we have to say NA because we don't worry about that stuff. Uh, so that, that, that ends up being the case a lot of the time. The, the security team is still catching up trying to ask the right questions. And I think there will be relevant questions that they should be asking. But as a, as a group, the service community, we don't necessarily know what those questions are. 
out of interest, um, outside of the service framework, which obviously has some uh, guardrails, have any of you used any third-party services on your serverless projects to help maintain quality in a security context? I've heard good things about SNYK, sure. S-N-Y-K, which uh, makes it great to make sure that you don't have that many uh, vulnerabilities. And I think Garrett is going to be in, like plugging that in because I think it introduces itself very nicely with a serverless framework. Um, but any point at any point in time, if you can have a tool that will help you find either uh, outdated dependencies or um, find ways that your application may be unsecure, I think you should take them and not just um, not just see it as a, as a potential cost, but potentially as a way for you to save your business. Yeah, yeah, we've actually uh, and we, we actually started using. You mentioned Snake. That's a good tool to take a look at. It's a great scanner of npm dependencies. And in fact, I think we use it now as part of the serverless framework itself. We we scan the framework using Snake to help us catch these kind of vulnerabilities because that's yeah, it's been mentioned. That's one of those tricky things: watching those dependencies to make sure that nothing slips through. Many examples of that in the past. That we don't need necessarily go into now, uh, but a great security tool to use just to help catch one of those application issues. And I guess one final tool I'd mention would be from observability point of view. I mean, cloud providers have their tools. AWS is CloudWatch, which isn't always the easiest to use as a developer in terms of user interface. The serverless framework or the service framework pro or enterprise has some tools now around, you know, seeing how many invocations of your functions, seeing, you know, how long the durations are. There are other uh, tools dedicated to that, like uh, Fundra, Epsigon, Lumigo, where they're giving good visibility on what your serverless architecture is, not based on your you saying what it is, but looking at your traces, showing, okay, this Lambda function is calling this RDS instance, and you can spot, well, maybe that's not your expected behavior. And also setting alerting around error rates and that sort of thing. I think it'd be interesting to see how those tools grow to look at the flows, the expected flows of data, and maybe send alerts when those flows of data deviate from the norm. Yeah. Um I don't know, it's another tool that I'm struggling to remember the name of, I apologize for that, but it uh, looks at the API calls that are going to be made um, by your uh, serverless code by doing some static code analysis and can generate uh, some, in AWS land at least, uh, some uh, IAM permissions that match that. And it can also then um, scan from CloudTrail what your, uh, those rules, what those lambdas are actually doing and can detect potentially violations against that. Because uh, without that kind of tooling, uh, actually trying to get principal belief privilege is incredibly hard to know exactly how to lock that down to a fine level and how to maintain that over, over time. I think that tool might be Policy Sentry from Salesforce. I know they open source something that sounds Wasn't very that one. It, that. it was an Israeli company that I was thinking of, but yeah, there's, I'm sure there's more than one of them out there. Sure. Uh, okay, well, let's move on to the next question. Um, which is, ah, let me just resume my screen share, there we go. If you're a smaller company, would you adopt a serverless microservice architecture? Now I directed this as Alid because um, we actually met at the AWS user group um, conference in London, actually the AWS demo day I think it was, and we had a conversation around serverless and microservice architectures. And I think Alid, you had quite an interesting perspective, maybe not completely from a security perspective, but on should smaller companies be adopting these serverless sort of microservice architectures? So I think the answer has got to be, it depends. Um, for some companies, then definitely. 
for others, then we would strongly but politely discourage it. Um, it really depends on what experience does your team have, what kind of applications are you trying to write. So we'll look back to security at the end. Um, and also let's take microservices first before we get into the serverless side of things. So I'm a big fan of microservices, but when they're used to solve a real problem rather than doing microservices because microservices are cool. Uh, so Martin Fowler has a great blog in which he talks about the prerequisites for a successful microservices project, which is things like that you can deploy your code fast, uh, that kind of thing. But he also talks about like, what are the characteristics of previously successful microservices projects? And most of those started with a monolith. And once that monolith was working well, it was then split up into microservices later. Uh, so it's interesting to drill into the reason for that. And that's because you need to understand your bounded contexts. So in other words, you need to be able to work on a microservice uh, without having to worry about all the other microservices that are around it too much. Uh, and if you can't do that, you're really going to struggle. Uh, and if you can't do that, you're also going to end up working on a distributed monolith. You have to update all of your microservices simultaneously uh, far too often. And that's just increased your pain rather than simplified anything for you. It's, it's turned into a horrible problem of uh, distributed updates and what, the, what do you do if you need to roll back something. Now, for small companies, like the problem they have is they're often operating in a hugely like uncertain environment. Like they're trying to still validate the product, they're validating their business model. They need to change direction quickly. And we've got these like um, pros and cons of things like serverless microservices. Yes, it allows us to evolve things quickly, but it only allows you to evolve it within the context of a particular microservice. And if you need to make some big change that crosses across multiple microservices, uh, then that is actually much, much harder than if you had your code inside a monolith. If you're using strongly typed language, your IDE will allow you to refactor things, will tell you when there's going to be a breakage and incompatibility, rather than having to worry about all of these microservices talking to each other and API compatibility and upgrading these uh, in a consistent manner. And when you don't understand your bounded context because you're trying to experiment fast, a monolith has a lot of benefits to it. Uh, so thinking about like the benefits of microservices, like one of the biggest benefits of microservices is that it allows you to scale your organization. So if you've only got like uh, a couple of teams, like a dozen people in your company who are cooperating, like a lot of the benefits microservices give to the larger companies aren't the ones that you need. And you can get a lot of the benefits but just by writing really well-written modular code that has a good deployment pipeline that allows you to release your monolith in minutes. Um, and unless you're talking about gigantic projects with millions of lines of code, like it will be minutes if you've got that pipeline there. Splitting it into microservices does not speed that up. Um, but moving on to the, the serverless side of things, uh, so we've already talked about the benefits and it removes a bunch of the, the operations tasks, it simplifies scalability and so on. And those are like massively important. Um, but it then comes back down to like, what experience do you have with this? So if we're talking to a small company who are used to building um, applications on VMs using Spring Boot or some other technology like that, and they're writing some web app, then they're going to be uh, better at using VMs. Uh, and although they might be able to get something up and running really quickly in serverless, there's like a massive gulf between uh, being able to get something up and running and being able to maintain something and operate it in production really reliably. 
and people who have done that for VMs will probably do it better with VMs than they will with serverless. So it's got to be a very uh, careful decision as to what risks are you trying to eliminate or take when you're choosing these technologies. Um, so like what we would generally advise for those smaller companies, like if they haven't built, serv built serverless applications before, is uh, to start off by using, say, lambdas or uh, in like more tactical places. So for example, like get rid of your cron jobs. Nobody should be running cron jobs on, on VMs. Like let's use lambdas for that. Or if you've got like a, see the classic example of somebody uploads a, an image and I want to resize that image uh, so I can have efficient downloads. Let's use a lambda for that. Uh, what about some data processing I've got? Let's use lambdas. Um, but that doesn't mean that this small company needs to launch into writing their entire application uh, in a serverless way when they've never done that before. Like that could be some Skunkworks project, but not your crown jewels of your uh, uh, of this small company. You're not betting the company on being able to write that within serverless. Um, of course, coming back to like the broader picture of serverless, like absolutely pick up API gateway uh, or load balancers, uh, get the cloud provider, whether it's AWS or Azure or Google to look after your databases for you, all that kind of stuff is uh, a no brainer. Um, but where your actual code runs, whether that's on uh, VMs or on containers or on serverless uh, for uh, Lambda functions is a you know, really careful choice based on uh, what you have experience with and what you think you can manage in production without forcing yourself to learn a whole load of stuff. And that includes learning a whole load of stuff about security. Like these people want to be able to focus on the business logic, not uh, have to go on courses and learn lots about how to operate uh, these applications. And the final thing I'd say on that is like, so as consultants, we're get involved in helping people write these applications. And although we could go in and write this as a serverless application for them, like we need to be conscious that we're gonna hand over this code to them at the end for some of those um, companies. And if they're unable to maintain and manage and monitor this, uh, then we're doing them a disservice there. Uh, and unless we're also embarking on some massive training program for them, yeah, that's a problem. And staff retention and, and so on as well. It's not just about training the small number of people there. Uh, and um, also we don't want to accidentally lock them in that they have to have some support contract with CloudSoft forevermore because they didn't realize the risk of having to manage their serverless projects. So they need to think about those risks up front. Yeah, I agree that serverless is definitely a spectrum, right? So just using Lambda doesn't make you serverless. Like when we're talking about databases, not managing them, managing them yourselves, there's lots of things you can do while still having a monolith and still using aspects of serverless. There, as you said, there are aspects of the application you can have as lambdas, you know, the PDF generator, the thumbnail, uh, encoder, whatever it is. You don't have to be binary, we're serverless, we're not serverless. Um, I guess for some smaller companies where they're validating you know, their MVP, their minimum viable products, there are now as well the flexibility to say, we don't actually need that much of a backend. We can have a database with um, AppSync through AWS, which is sort of an automatic GraphQL layer. If we just got a simple application where we're displaying some forms and inputting some data, we don't necessarily need like a backend. But I also agree with you that if you have a small company with a couple of developers who are frantically working to a deadline, who aren't necessarily uh, familiar with how to do microservices as well, and I think a lot of companies aren't familiar with how to do microservices as well because it's, it's not an easy problem. I agree that maybe starting with a monolith, as you said, figuring out your band of context and then slowly refactoring that into 
a more sort of microservice approach can work well. I have one client at the moment who's sort of doing a distributed monolith approach. So they have a large code base that they are deploying in a Lambda function. And although they do take a hit on their cold start time because the package is quite large, that's not actually crucial to their business. Like their business, they're not um, an instant messaging platform. They're an internal tool for large companies. Their company gets to move really quickly because the code sharing is extremely simple in this monolithic code base. They're deploying it in a serverless way and they have a slow cold start time, but that doesn't define their business success. Later on, their plan is to then refactor this once they've figured out their product into having a more microservice architecture and serverless. But at the moment, they're benefiting from both a monolithic approach and a serverless approach. And in the future, they're looking to move. But I agree that sometimes you need to just figure out what your product is and figure out from a tech side what that looks like before necessarily you can figure out a good uh, separation of your concerns um, and move that to, more, to microservice architecture. Maxine? I agree. Yeah, I agree a lot with, with pretty much everything Alan said. Um, we, you use what you're good with. So if you have this uh, small team of uh, amazing developers that are experts at Kubernetes, then Kubernetes makes sense because everyone is on the team's already trained. New developers are going to be able to be retrained on that specific technology, and you're going to get this good momentum with uh, this specific technology flow. But like Alex said, if your team is very good with VMs and has almost no knowledge of serverless, that would be although not necessarily a huge learning curve sometimes uh, companies especially startups have limited resources and limited time so all of those efforts instead of being spent on technologies that are technically unknown could be better spent actually trying to find that business model for which they're going to be able to start generating revenue so for me it's all about using what you're good with and Although I might not agree with VMs for the cloud, because eventually you're gonna you're gonna find this very expensive. Um, I think there's a good middle ground to reach where you need to use what you're gonna be comfortable with and what you're gonna be what the team is gonna be comfortable with as well. Um, Alan mentioned that as a consultant, uh, you don't want to throw like technology that a customer is not gonna be used with. And for me, it's it's a little bit like one of the values that um, I, I really love is uh, it's trust, right? I mean, they hire you as a consultant and they, you, you're there to solve a problem, not to bring more. So they trust you to solve those kind of issues. And understanding your customers and their technology capacity in terms of learning, in terms of um, competencies, and even just a lot you may be dropped in a region that has no experts in a specific technology and you cannot just bring that technology and expect them to just hire someone right i mean if you're looking at the banks with all their fortran and mainframes it's just they're, they're having a hard time hiring for that but what about the new technology on which there's no one in their local area that have those kind of things so i love the the answer it depends because it's it's always the right answer for pretty much all the questions we ask. Um, but I also agreed a lot with, um, with the uses for serverless that might seems like a little bit too easy, but all those cron jobs that uh, Alan was talking about, this is, this is a great start to start learning a new, a new text, a new tech stack. And those cron jobs most of the time will not have, uh, 
massive impact on your customer as in it's not live right now, it doesn't work. It might have big impacts because you might delete the database, but um, it, it's an easy job to start with and start understanding how the, the technology work. And if they only start with that in terms of serverless, this is great. Um, and for my last point, um, there was this, I, I, I don't remember which guy said that, but if you're not great at building monolith, you're not gonna be great at building uh, microservices. I think it's, was it Fowler? I, I don't remember his name, um, but that was basically it. I mean, so use what you're good, you're good with and build from there. Yeah, I, I definitely agree that um, if you have the opportunity, do something simple and serverless, you know, um, the thumbnail generator, whatever it is, before you go, okay, now we're going to rebuild everything because you need to check your team will upskill. You need to check you, that you understand what it's like running that production. You need to make sure you add the tools, maybe using the serverless uh, pro or serverless enterprise guardrails around IAM policies, maybe making sure you give your, um, if you're in a larger company, your security department time to catch up before you suddenly are deploying huge parts of your infrastructure and serverless. Uh, Gareth, I guess maybe slightly biased by your uh, company name, but uh, what were your thoughts on uh, Alid's answer? Well, the, the, the thing is, I, it makes me think of the first time I uh, started looking into serverless. I was actually a lead at a company that had a code base uh, based on WordPress that was 10 years old. Um, and I came in when they were having trouble trying to maintain this code base because it had grown over time. And it wasn't really providing this huge amount of complex functionality. It was just every team that had come in over time was adding their own little flavor to things, refactoring this, moving this around, tweaking this, and get to the point where I joined the team and there's two other developers underneath me and we're trying to maintain this code base. So ultimately you get to the point where you realize that you're probably going to have to start uh, considering some kind of rewrite, some kind of rebuild because things are becoming difficult to maintain. And that was when I was first introduced to the idea of serverless. And it's exactly, as was mentioned here, you've got this existing monolith that has been running relatively okay for a few years. So you now understand your domain, but now you've got the opportunity to consider alternatives. Um, and the great thing is, even if you're starting from Greenfield, even if, you, if, even if you've built nothing yet, you still don't understand your domain. Monolith is probably the right idea. I agree with that. But it doesn't necessarily have to be on VMs. Uh, the great thing is there are tools out there that let you do things like uh, sort of, for example, the Breath framework, uh, if you've heard of that. It lets you build it lets you build your application, a PHP application in this case, in Laravel or Symfony or one of these monolithic frameworks and deploy it into serverless. Uh, which is a pretty uh, great way to get an introduction into uh, the serverless world while still building a monolith, while still building the thing that you know and understand, but having a tweak on how you deploy it. So you're slowly learning these extra uh, primitives, these extra things about the cloud that you might not have known before, uh, but you're still got a monolithic application that, that is what you worry about, which then lets you get to that point where, as in my example of the, you know, the first place I started building serverless, you start breaking out those pieces eventually. Because now you have the confidence to understand, oh, I can spin this off as an API. I can take the reviews section of this website uh, that's broken right now and spin this off as an API gateway endpoint so that my, my front end can call in review data into my product pages dynamically on an API sitting on serverless. Let's look at this for six months. Let's spend the time getting to know and understand how the system works while we are actually fixing a broken part of the system. And move on to the next piece. Let's take this cron job, a great example. Cron jobs are like the number one thing you can take out that helps you learn serverless, as it were. A great way to uh, start off. Um, 
but essentially anything that can that you can break out as a little piece on its own. One of my favorites is a messaging service, something that's going to send transactional email. People sign up, you need to send them a welcome email, make that a service. You send that a, uh, a, a message on SNS, for example, any pub subsystem that says send a message with the message content and it generates a template and off it goes. And you can do this for all the transactional messages for your entire system. And that's one less piece that's in the monolith, one more microservice. And now you've got complete control over that and you're still learning. Uh, so this is all a process. And this is why, uh, as well, even, even at the serverless framework, at Serverless Inc., I'm, if you go to serverless.com, we've got a ton of learning material. And this isn't, this isn't a selling point that I'm trying to make. This is to say that serverless is so new that anybody in the space has kind of a responsibility to try and educate a lot more, which is why this panel is so great, because we need to educate developers a lot more. There's a lot to learn. This is a very different way of doing things. And the faster we can educate folks, the faster we can uh, get everybody on board with understanding how to build these applications in the best way possible. But like Alan said, do what you know uh, and start introducing those serverless aspects over time as you understand what you need to build and how to build it. Well, I don't think I can give a better summary to that section. Um, so I think let's move on to the final question. Um, and if anyone has any questions in the audience, feel free to submit anything through the Q&A. We can get back to you today, or otherwise um, we can get back to you uh, asynchronously. Uh, so the final question, and sort of more of a quick uh, go around between uh, the panel now, so we only have about seven minutes left. Um, there are several advantages to a service architecture. We've talked about several of them today from cost to scalability, reduction in ops, and even potentially greener architectures and other advantages. What's the main one for you and why? So maybe if we start with Maxime, what's the main advantage for you in terms of uh, adoption of service architecture? So my focus is, is and has always been around students. So there's different profile around the table right now. Uh, but for me, it's it's mostly about students and getting them to get, getting them to start into this field. And a lot of the issues that they have is as simple as pricing, as in how do I, how do I get started? And oh, this thing's too expensive. I can't use it. And serverless solve that problem because it allows them to create uh, simple applications and uh, to get started really quickly. And that ties to the second main one is that it was tied for me is the, the, the simplified deployment model of a serverless application because they don't need to learn everything about compute uh, like about a specific framework about a specific language they just they copy paste a little bit of code they understand how you go, how to get it started and on top of that most of the time it's free so for me, it's a great learning tool for new developers to get them started uh, in our field without too much problems. Of course, there are still all the issues of security that we talked we talked previously, but they're, they're just starting. So let's not bury them and under all the details yet. But for me, those are the main two ones that I would love to uh, to keep on pushing. Awesome. And Alad, what would be the main one for you? So taking the broader definition first, like um, all of those things that I don't want to have to look after, like load balancers or API gateways, databases, and so on, like to hand that over to an expert uh, who will follow best practices for managing this stuff, deal with data backup and everything else, like is absolutely brilliant. Like that side of operations is just saves so much time and worry. Uh, but if we focus on the other side of like, where's my code running? 
uh, I think it's the scalability that uh, is the, the number one thing. Um, and I like that answer because I get to scale down to zero as part of that. So that also gives me the, it costs zero if, the, if it's not doing anything, uh, but also then scale up to deal with spikes. So I, I don't need to worry about planning ahead for uh, predicting my load. Awesome. And Gareth, for you? I find it very tricky to pick one because serverless is one of those things when I first heard of it, it was like, oh, it's quite cheap. Oh, it scales itself. Oh, the speed is not, no, no single item necessarily is this huge flag that makes you go, that's amazing. But you start taking them all together and it, it becomes very difficult to ignore. Uh, but I guess if I really had to pick one uh, that was one of the big deals, I'd, I'd have to go with ops reduction. Um, and I don't know if this is just a South African thing, because obviously that's where I've, obviously most of my career as, a, as an application developer. Um, but finding, uh, being able to find people who understand how the underlying systems work when it comes to setting up, uh, you know, basically the, the good old sysadmin or DevOps team is actually very tricky to do and do well. Um, the, the market is very short on skills. Uh, there's a huge demand for people in the field. Um, and, and that becomes often the biggest barrier that I've seen with teams trying to get applications out there is to have that competent person handling all of that stuff. So being able to handle that over, as Ella was saying, to a provider like AWS or Azure or Google and say, please just handle that stuff for me. I just want my app. It's probably the biggest deal that I can think of because it just lets me build my application. I don't have to worry about that stuff. And everything else that comes with that is just a cherry on the top. I mean, it's going to be cheaper if it's not, if it's not high volume. It's scalable uh, to a very large degree. And a lot of the times you can contact these vendors and say, please, can you up my capacity on this so that I can handle more? Um, you know, all of these things together are great. But that ops reduction makes it so the teams can just get out there and get their stuff done. Amazing. And for me, I think um, if we can make more efficient usage of server resources, we can make more efficient usage of energy in general. So the potential greener impact of architecture in the future is something that really excites me. And the more content that comes out around that, I'm getting very excited by. So I think to, to summarize, service has the potential to reduce the barriers to educate the next generation of developers. It allows us to outsource the expertise of ops. It's allowing us to scale to zero and scale to massive amounts and potentially it's reducing the carbon footprints of our architectures. So I feel that's a nice uh, place to conclude our panel for today. Um, if there's anything any of you wanted to add, uh, now's your time, otherwise I think we're good. All good for me. Yeah, awesome. thank you. Well, thanks I'll just, uh, oh, yeah. I'll just add that if somebody hasn't uh, tr gone and tried to run and deploy a serverless application, now's a good time. We mentioned the good reasons why it's, it's essentially free to try. Uh, it's not gonna hurt just to spin up a little API and go play with it um, and really give serverless a, a good spin. Well, that's a, an awesome way to end. So thanks to the panel. Thanks everyone who Thanks for listening to this Serverless Transformation podcast, a podcast about all things serverless. If you're interested in hearing more content, please follow me on Twitter at LBBen. That's at E-L-L-E-R-B-Y-B-E-N. Follow us on Medium, medium.com slash serverless-transformation. And keep up to date with our GitHub. That's github.com slash theodo-uk. This podcast is brought to you by Theodo, a development company in London passionate about open source technologies like serverless and delivering MVPs quickly. If you're interested in anything we can help you with, please go to www.theodo.co.uk. Thanks for listening and I hope to see you next time.